This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM, episode 22. And we welcome a big name, Dr. Jamie Good, a plant scientist. He was one of the wine world's first bloggers. 20 years ago, and he's now a prolific author as well. His latest work being a comprehensive update of Wine Science, the third edition. We'll talk about that and find out whether he has a favourite wine. Plus, later on, it's time to check in with uh, Freddie Bulmer again to reflect on being a busy buyer at the Wine Society. And I should warn you, he's feeling festive this episode. And as ever, your wine and spirit recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's 20 years since Dr. Jamie Good started a wine blog. Back then, it was something new, different, and bizarrely, sometimes something to be sneered at by some. Wine Anorak is much more than a blog these days. It's a fully-fledged website and online magazine, really, a rich seam of tasting notes and wine knowledge. And from that early blog, in a sort of reverse takeover, the man behind it has gone on to become an old-school newspaper wine columnist, amongst other things, and also a prodigious author. His latest release is Wine Science, the third edition, which seeks to demystify some of the technical stuff for people like you and me. Well, certainly uh, me at any rate, uh, fusing his knowledge as a scientist and his skills as a communicator. Dr. Jamie Good joins us now on The Drinking Hour. Uh, Jamie, I should really introduce you as Dr. Good, but it seems a little bizarre when I'm kind of more used to seeing you around a tasting table or on a press trip. So I hope um, Jamie is just uh, is okay. Yes, that's perfect. Fine, thank you very much. Um, you have a PhD in plant science. So did your love of wine come from a, a study of the vine? Not really, no. Um, it's like many things in, in life, it's kind of a serendipity. It was just, just a, a circumstances conspired. I mean, I was, I was a kind of, I was doing my PhD and I became friends with a group of people and one of the friends in the group um, had a had a love for wine and, you know, we used to get together on Sunday evenings and, you know, share a couple of bottles between a few of us. And that's when I was first exposed to interesting wine that made me realise there was something special about wine that I don't think, you know, you necessarily get 
from your random interactions with cheap wine when you're a student. You know, it's very rarely you'll come across a bottle that, that gives you that sort of epiphany moment where you go, whoa, there's something special about this. So, so really, um, my love for wine came from a, a, a sort of social context um, through which I was able to realize that, ah, some of these bottles are really interesting and there's something more to be discovered here. And did you have an epiphany with a specific bottle of wine? I mean, in my case, it was a, a bottle of uh, Margot, I know not the vintage, um, in a steakhouse in New York. And I just thought, wow, uh, was there a, an epiphany with a particular bottle for you? I guess there were a few little epiphanies, but the one that I kind of would, would focus on was there's this one wine, it's an Australian wine from the Hunter Valley, and it's Broken Woods Graveyard Hermitage, it was called then. Um, which is a Shiraz, and I came across the 1991 version of this in a local wine shop, and it was I was guided to it by this friend who knew wine, and we tried it. And then I went back and I bought three bottles of it, and it was my first ever multiple bot, you know, multiple bottle purchase. I remember how much it cost: thirteen pounds forty nine a bottle, and this must have been in about 1993. And that wine was like a special moment for me, um, because you know that that was something that I really liked um it just turned out to be one of those classic vintages this is the the famous vintage of the the broken wood graveyard and um yeah now it's very expensive wine but then it was something not many people have heard about here and it was a real discovery so tell us uh, with wine science now in its third edition as i mentioned um what are you setting out to do with a book uh, that has science in the name well i first did this in I think it was 2004 the first edition so I was still full-time employed as a science editor and really the goal was to take the really interesting bits of science in wine because wine is kind of scientific wine is pretty scientific um, you know even even non-scientists practicing wine take quite a sort of empirical scientific approach they try different things in the winery they try different things in the vineyard and see what the effects are and through time through this trial and error process which is you know hands-on science it may not be involved in replicates and and you know probability and all the things of scientific experiments but it's people in the in the vineyards in the wineries effectively doing science on their own and that's so wine is intrinsically scientific so i want to take the very interesting aspects of science um, as applied to wine and and make them understandable to to normal people who you know which representing kind of most of the wine industry people who haven't had a formal scientific background and I think the reason I, you know, I realized that, that, that there was a gap there is because I was 15 years a science editor and I was, you know, producing academic level books from science, scientific conferences that we held and going to those conferences and seeing the ways that scientists promoted and communicated their work made me realize there was a huge gulf between that level of, of explanation and what's needed to, to take these intrinsically interesting discussions and and ideas and make them accessible to a broader audience. It's interesting you talk about the way you communicate science and obviously your background as a, a science editor as well was, was um, around that. Um, because going right back to school, um, when it comes to science, and you're right, it's, it's really important in uh, wine, I can feel um, a kind of curtain coming down uh, when people start to get too scientific at a tasting. It's a, uh, uh, and it's it, it, it can be really um, quite exclusive, can't it? Science. Oh, it totally is. It's totally impenetrable. 
And the way it's taught at school, I think, is, is appalling. It's truly appalling, the way that science is made difficult and not interesting. It's almost, it's almost as if there's, there's the, well, my experience of science being taught at school was that the, the teachers had colluded to, to take all the fun out of it, to make it as difficult as possible and as dull as possible. And I just think that some of the, the some why science concepts are, f are fascinating, but the, you know, you need to unpack them and make them accessible without dumbing them down. And I think that the, one of the problems has been that people who really want to popularize science have just dumbed it down and stripped out of all the interesting bits. And we don't want that either. So I think it is, yes, it's, it's, and also I think if you've struggled a little with, with certain ideas and everything, because like, for instance, with me, I struggled quite a lot with maths and physics, you know, they weren't my favorite subjects. But then when you've struggled with something and you've then been able to understand it, you're probably better at leading somebody into that subject than somebody for whom it's come very naturally. Because I think at heart, I was an, art, an artist who did science. You know, you got to choose at the age of 16 in the UK education system between arts and sciences. And because the school I went to, I got pushed into sciences. But at heart, I'm more of an arts person. And so I think that gives me the ability then to, to do the science, to understand it, but then also to communicate it. Well, you use very easy, relatable language. Is that something that just kind of happens uh, or is it something you've really set out to do? I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of the person reading it who hasn't got a, an extensive science background. You know, why is this interesting? That's always the question I'm asking is why is this important? Why is this interesting? How does this get applied? Not getting bogged down in all the details. But also keeping a broader, because I was a science editor covering a lot of the life sciences and agriculture. You know, I was dipping my toes in lots of different scientific fields. And that gives you a broad perspective that I think often when you're a scientist, you, you get funneled into a very tiny um, sphere of study quite early on. And, and so the, that's your bubble and you don't see the whole picture very much. And what we did at the, the organization I worked for was a scientific charity was we tried to take a, a topic that was very current, but then have a, a sort of as much as we could an interdisciplinary approach to it, a more holistic approach where you've got people with different insights coming together and hopefully then um, um, stimulating each other um, by the fact that they're bringing slightly different insights to each of the problems. This is the third edition of what is, uh, in effect, a, a reference book, albeit a, a very engaging one. Um, has so much really changed that you need a third edition? Well, two answers to that. One, sort of, yes. And secondly, there's a 100,000 word limit on these books. So when I went to the second edition, I had to chop things out of the first edition to fit the new stuff in the second edition. And so when it came to the third edition, there's lots of stuff I've never really included in the book that should have been there. So I've chopped, basically it's half new. So it's about half of the book is, is brand new. Some of the stuff is quite similar to what was in the previous edition because it's really important and it's still very current. But, you know, the world of viticulture has changed quite a bit and winemaking approaches have changed quite a bit. Um, you know, this, we're in a very active period in the wine industry where there's a lot of fresh insights, especially in the vineyard. You know, the traditional notions of, of um, splitting viticulture up into conventional, sustainable and organics doesn't work anymore. There's, there's far more nuanced, nuanced approaches to, to being truly sustainable in the vineyard. And I think that some of the science involved in that is quite new science, really. And it's only recently that, that, that next level sequencing has allowed people to see what microbes are actually out there, rather than simply which sorts of microbes will grow on a Petri dish in a lab when you try and culture them. 
So there's a lot more information about a lot of the stuff that really is very important that we've kind of discounted a bit in the past. One of the things that has definitely changed uh, in quite uh, an alarming way is the state of the planet, which is obviously very much in the news at the moment anyway, and rightly so. Um, you refer in the book to climate chaos uh, rather than global warming or using a, a, another expression. How much is the change in the weather um, impacting the way grapes are grown? Massively. Obviously, as you point out, the, 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 the grapevine only sees the weather of that season. It doesn't see the climate's an average. You know, there's increasing um, frequency of, of events happening in vineyards, whether they're, they're bushfires or frost events or hail, where, um, and this season has been particularly bad in Europe, most of Europe, for, for downy mildew. It's been a horrific season for downy mildew, following on with some really brutal early frosts. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a increasing disruption of stable weather patterns and vines like stable weather. And the reason I use um, climate chaos is I think that climate change doesn't quite communicate the severity of the problem. And I think that I think climate chaos, it may sound a bit jargony, but it's it's the words we use do matter. And this reminds us this is a very serious issue. and. It, not just for viticulture, evidently, you know, it's a it's a serious issue that's um, threatening um, a lot of people's not just livelihoods, but their ability to function and live where they they do. So I think that for viticulture, which is very sensitive to climatic changes, um, we have a um, you know, it's something that the, the wine world has to almost take a bit of a lead on, you know, it's, it's got to respond now. And so quite a chunk of um well there's a quite extensive chapter focusing on the the, the changes that that um, are being experienced and, and ways that um, people can can offset those and then of course we've got to look at the carbon footprint of wine as well i think it's only appropriate that wine should take a long look at how it can decarbonize wine has got off relatively lightly thus far when it comes to being kind of fingered for its carbon footprint hasn't it yeah, I think part of it is because, you know, you're growing stuff and, you know, and so you're releasing carbon dioxide, but it's it's kind of carbon dioxide that's been sequestered from the atmosphere in the first place. Um, but yeah, with things like the transport chain, there's increasing discussion about, um, you know, bottle weights, shipping finished product versus shipping in bulk um, and all these sorts of issues. So I think this is something that that's an ongoing conversation. Bottle weight is one of those things that I just find absolutely baffling. As someone who is um, newer uh, to the world of, of wine writing and, and wine journalism, because obviously it's this second career for me, as, as you know, I just find it absolutely nuts that you get these sort of, uh, sort of six ton bottles, you know, kilogram bottles almost. Um, what's, the, what's the reason for that? Is it just because people are obsessed with heavier meaning premium? Yeah, I think that's it's cultural as well. So, for instance, if you if you go to South America, it's rampant. The the, the you know the, the icon wines are in extremely heavy bottles. Chinese market flipping loves them. So, for instance, I was doing a big tasting of Moldovan wines recently, and Moldova China is an important market for Moldova. So their premium stuff is all in sort of like you know kilogram bottles. So it is an issue, um, and I think it's being addressed. But more broadly, you know we've. It just seems to be that that bottles don't make sense for commodity wine. But then at the same time, you know, what we've got is we've, we're seeing wine isn't just a liquid in a glass. Wine is a product that 
we recognize and appreciate and part of the 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 experience of wine is the fact that it's it's a bottle you have a bottle of wine and it's so in, deeply ingrained within our psychology that we like to open a bottle of wine um that it's hard to get rid of the bottle mm, no good point and uh, you uh i, I think it's uh, a new chapter uh phenolics in the new edition and you introduce that by saying we're about to embark on a difficult journey uh, why so because phenolics is an incredibly difficult area of chemistry and what's happening in terms of phenolics and obviously in white wines as well as red but you know they're, they're very different discussions and then we've got the the orange wines as well the, the skin fermented whites and, and and so phenolics are a really important group of compounds that 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 are vital to wine but trying to explain them simply is, is really hard and that's mm. why it's a difficult journey it's just and also the, our knowledge of exactly what's happening with phenolics in the bottle during um great development then during winemaking then during bottle storage is is a little bit patchy um and there's some myths that are widely um, touted you know through wine education channels that maybe aren't strictly true but then that's not the only thing that that wine education has seized upon that may not be strictly true. How do you mean? Well, it's like, you know, what we have, people get taught stuff, right? And what they're taught is a, an understanding of wine chemistry that maybe isn't actually that accurate. It just persists. Like in physiology, the, the myth of the tongue map, you know, everyone got taught in school about the tongue and how different areas of the tongue are sensitive to different basic tastes. And um, that turns out to be a myth, um, oh. but it's an enduring myth. Yeah. Right, okay. Uh, you also talk, obviously, about soil. Um, uh, there are those um, who who will dismiss the notion that soil has anything to do with kind of finished wine. Um, what's your um, sort of stance on how important soil type is? Well, I think that, you know, to, to simplify this greatly, I think obviously the major factor influencing, you know, wine flavour is, is temperature. You know, it's it's the climate that has the major effect on that but you know once you've got the climate that's suitable for for ripening a particular variety um, then soil types are really important and you can see it you know in plots with different soils you know maybe 50 yards apart you ever, do everything the same in the vineyard do everything the same in the winery the wines will taste different so therefore the discussion becomes one of not do soils influence wine flavor they clearly do but how do soils influence wine flavor and this is where a lot of the scientists or the people who dismiss the importance of soils have got have been, have been caught out a bit because they're they're um, they don't like the the way that that traditional you know wine growing regions people talk about the taste of the soil in the wine and you might go to Chablis and they say well you can taste the limestone in this wine as if the roots were translocating aspects of the soil into the grapes that were then flavoring the wine so that literalist notion of terroir and the role of soils is one that the scientists have kicked back on but in their kicking back against this this fallacy as they see um, they've missed the point that actually yeah you can actually taste differences in soil the mechanism must be clearly different but now there's been some scientific studies that have, have kind of backed this idea up soil type does matter it does affect the flavor of the wine quite considerably and i'd say that you know after a lot of practice with lots of wines in general you can taste the difference between granite or limestone or you know schist for instance you know in in wines where that's the predominant soil type you can almost there's almost a family resemblance and it's hard to describe how and it sounds a little bit pseudo 
but it's it, I think it's quite real. It's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, in the time that you've been uh, writing about wine and um, writing about science in wine, um, has um, altitude become much more of a consideration as well? Well, I think it has because I think that the the Argentines have really told this story very well because if you go to Mendoza, you've got um, differences between 650 metres in the eastern zone and then you go up to Gualtajari and you're hitting 1,400 metres. And the differences uh, are, are several, but one of the key differences is the, the role of ultraviolet light. You know, as you get higher up, um, you get cooler temperatures during the growing season. You know, you lose a degree every 100 metres. Um, and then what you end up with is you end up with um, this high UV environment, which has demonstrable effects, certainly on on red wine quality and the Argentines have told this story really well and I think altitude is obviously a great modifier of of heat so with a warming trend you know caused by the climate chaos that we're experiencing um, higher vineyards have suddenly become more viable um, because that's one way of escaping um, temperatures that are too high I interviewed uh, Jancis uh, a couple of months ago uh, in the first series of The Drinking Hour. And uh, one of the things she uh, remarked upon, which I hadn't really um, considered um, as, a, as a relative newbie, certainly uh, c compared to her, um, is the remarkable improvement in wine quality across the board uh, during her uh, impressively long career. Um, I know you've not been going as long as Jancis, but um, but you've been going quite a while. Is that something that you have really observed um, in the time that you've had wine anorak, for example? Yeah, I think I say when I started, when I was a student, um, you go into the local gateway, buy a bottle of wine, you know, bottom feeding or lowest sort of price wine, and half of them made you gag the cheap wines. They weren't very nice at all. They were actually quite <laughs> unpleasant. And the difference now is you can go into any of the major, you know, multiple grocers and pick up a bottle from the shelf and it's probably going to be okay and it might even be quite tasty, even the cheap stuff's tasty. And I think that quality, I think, has risen considerably and I tasted the, um, I'm one of the co-chairs of the International Wine Challenge, so we taste, you know, many thousands of wines over a two and a half week period. You know, so you get a snapshot of the overall quality and, and generally speaking, the, the thing we've noticed is that that there's, there are fewer bad wines. There's fewer wines where you think, oh, that's definitely out. Whoa, you know, it's it's much rarer now. Um, so I think Jen, she's, she's right, you know, wine quality has gone up. But maybe that's one of the problems with the wine industry and profitability is if the cheap wines taste fine, then what reason is there for uh, trading up? And, you know, for most people, just buy the cheap stuff. It's perfectly good. Just stay away from the famous areas because the cheap stuff from famous regions is usually not as good. But for, you know, if you go to, if you're in Spanish, if you're looking at Spanish wine, Spanish bulk wine is often really tasty, you know. Um, mm. um, Chilean cheap wine is quite nice. You know, it's, you, can, you can go to the south of France and get something really quite nice for very little money. And Southern Italian whites are often fantastic for, you know, six quid. So cheap wine is much better than it used to be. And I think that's cannibalized some of the sales from more expensive bottles. You just simply, you can trade up without actually getting something that tastes a great deal nicer. Gateway, there's a blast from the past. I had a Saturday yes. job at Gateway. I had to wear a badge <laughs> saying, David, full of fresh ideas. Um, but anyway, that's for a, uh, another day. Um, you've also written a book, uh, one of your many um, tomes, about uh, wine faults. Um, what's the most common one? That's a great question. I think the most common one still is cork taint. Um, 
when we do the wine challenge, that's the, the fault that crops up the most. I mean, you know, there's, the, you see, the, the, the book's called Flawless. It's about understanding faults in wines. But it, so it, it's, it's discussing more issues. It's almost like, you know, oxygen management is really important because you can lose quality through poor oxygen management. But is the wine faulty? Maybe not. Maybe it's just not as good as it could have been. So it's quite a nuanced discussion. I think, I think yeah, so cork taint, I think, is the biggest. I think that we also have lots of issues with um, Britannomyces still. It's, it's, a, it's an issue. But then, you know, spotting Britannomyces in a wine, does that make it automatically faulty? And that's another interesting discussion. Mm. Um, what else? Um, oxidation, oxidations and volatile acidity are still, you know, um, out there quite a bit. And then we've got new faults emerging, like mousiness, which is something that that I'd never experienced until about five years ago. And it's really um, something that's really cropping up a lot more now. What causes mousiness? For anyone listening who's wondering what that is, it's, it's literally, it's the kind of slightly stale smell of a mouse, isn't it? Well, it's like mouse cages, biscuits, that sort of, it's a savoury flavour. You, you kind of get it. Um, so when you smell a wine that's mousy, you don't smell anything. So only when it's in your mouth, and the mm. pH of your mouth is higher than the wine. And at mouth pH, what happens is that suddenly these, these tetrahydropyridines um, that cause the, the mouse fault, which are produced by bacteria in the wine. So it's usually wine with no sulfites um, during the fermentation process where you, you run the risk of mousiness. And when you get it in your mouth, then suddenly you taste it, you smell it, and it's like an aftertaste. Um, and it's really, once you learn to recognize it, it's deeply unpleasant, but some people kind of, because it comes a few seconds after you've tasted the wine, it, it's one of those faults. It takes a little. It, you kind of go, mm, "What's that? I'm not sure." But that's that's you know, it needs to be explained to you really. But this is you know, I love natural wine, but natural wine has brought with it um, these these new developments of of certain wine faults. Certain people are more susceptible to certain faults, aren't they? So, for example, Brett appears to be one where I'll be sitting with someone who will be going, Brett, Brett, as if there's a Brett in the room. And I'm kind of not getting that in anything like the same way, certainly in, unless it's pointed out to me. Uh, and there'll be others around the table in the, in the same boat. It, it, there is a, 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 a subjective nature to, to wine faults, isn't there? Yes, um, certainly people's thresholds for some of these fault compounds vary quite a bit. And so, um, yeah, you can quite happily be enjoying a wine while somebody next to you thinks it's got a problem. That's not abnormal. And I think there's also an element to which is once you've trained yourself to recognise these faults, it's as if your threshold changes a little bit as well and you become more sensitive to them. You uh, famously kind of don't pull your punches on social media, at least. Uh, you kind of call out bullshit. Um, you're uh, never that far from a, a kind of Twitter fracas. Um, do you what revel... are you suggesting? <laughs> you know damn well what I'm suggesting. Uh, do you um, revel in the occasional bit of controversy? No, actually, I've pulled back from getting involved. I've had to, there's a few people who I've um, have respectfully muted <laughs> and right. so, because it just wasn't helpful because I think some people some people genuinely get off on goading and having a spat I, I like discussion I love it I really like a robust discussion but what I don't like is discussing things with people who don't just want a robust discussion they actually want a bit of a fight and and they'll use various illegitimate debating techniques to try and win the argument and that gets really tiresome you know um, I'm not a controversialist I do like to discuss things and I, I'm happy to discuss them robustly, 
But I always try and be kind and respectful. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be mean to somebody on Twitter. But the problem is it does look, it's very hard to see the intent of the person when you've, when you've, you've dropped in your message and it can be read in one of three ways. Inevitably, a person might read it in the worst of those three ways. So it's something, it's an area where I've, I've tried to reform myself. Oh, well, it's the peril of the written word as well, isn't it? That yes. uh, it could be uh, taken in a, a number of different uh, uh, ways. Um, which wines really kind of turn you on these days? As you'll know, that's quite a hard thing to answer, but I'm, I'm still enjoying, very much enjoying Grosjean Champagnes, really enjoying sort of natural Beaujolais. I'm starting to get a real taste for, um, I've kind of neglected Piedmont, so I'm getting a real taste for Piedmont. I was there a couple of weeks ago and tasted reasonably widely, um, even though I was there to be doing, I was there for doing some lectures at a university, but I happened to be in, in, in Piedmont in the wine region. So, so yeah, so I'm beginning to, to focus increasingly on those. Yeah, it's really hard to answer, but I think that I think that those those are the wines that I'm currently on the lookout for. And you, uh, I was doing my homework last night. You talk uh, on the website about your um, love hate relationship with Bordeaux. Um, why do you have that love hate relationship? Well, partly because I respect it as a region. You know, it's, this is like a fantastic place. When you go there, you get a. It's not the most beautiful wine region in the world for sure, but um, you get a sense of its historical importance. You look at some of the terroirs, they're fantastic. Uh, you, you, you've you, got a real sense of a historically important wine region that still, you know, still commercially is hugely significant. And the frustration comes from the, the fact that, that this is a place where um, the top 4% has cast a shadow over the rest of the region, you know. So the, the top class growths of the Medoc, you know, of, are internationally visible and it's almost like a template the rest of the region so everyone has to put a picture of a chateau on the or some gates of a chateau if they haven't got a chateau on their um, label and and you know stick with that image and then you've got the the the, the fact you've got these spotless barrel halls and winemakers wearing suits which is, you never trust a winemaker who wears a suit and these <laughs> spotless barrels this is a winery it's not supposed to be some spotless temple to money you know but then commercially they've got it right in the sense that they've got this um, you know, the, the major chateau, they've, you know, you usually have around 100 hectares. So they're making the major production wine is their Grand Van. So it's this inverted pyramid, whereas in most wine regions, the top wine is the top of the pyramid in the small production, whereas Bordeaux is produced in commercially significant quantities. So you can, you know, there's enough bottles of Chateau Lafitte produced every year that, that its its value is known around the world. It's traded regularly, so it's got a certain um, value to it. But then what I don't like about the region is the way that it's stylistically has shifted it's gone in a riper direction uh, you've got the consultant winemakers who are very powerful and important you've got an increasing proportion of new oak used every year um, you've got these these stunningly polished wines that are then traded endlessly and end up in warehouses and aren't all that often drunk and i think that, that you've got the makings of a bubble that's about to burst because the great growths of the past used to be a 50-year wine so when you look at 2009 those wines are so ripe to start off with. I don't think they're going to be 50 year wines, but people will be sitting on them and trading them. And then suddenly, you know, in 10, 15 years time, people will be opening them. And there's a chance, I'm not saying it's going to happen, that these wines won't have continued to develop in a positive way. And then you've got a problem on your hands. Um, but then you've got to admire the, 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 the way that Bordeaux is sold, actually, that the whole place, the, the place is like a fantastic way of selling wine through the courtiers and negotiants, because it means that each of these chateaux doesn't have to do the the very hard and 
you know, work of actually marketing and selling their own wines. And they'd have to hire professionals to do that. You know, professionals would have to be doing it. It would be much more expensive, actually, for each chateau to be selling their own wine than for them all to go through the the place and that, that fantastic system of selling and distributing wine with the imprimeurs and, you know, all that stuff. And so I think it's a, it's a region that 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 interests me that that thrills me but also kind of like i'm slightly disappointed by but i think what we're seeing in bordeaux that is we're seeing a shift back to terroir we're seeing a shift away from making these polished international wines that are um that have just gone a bit too far in terms of ripeness and winemaking and genuinely a lot of the enologists in the region are thinking a bit more let's let's go back to the vineyard let's try to make things that are more expressive of place interesting and uh I, I've never seen you in a tweed suit or salmon pink uh, cord, so uh, I suspect um, we may never uh, do that, um, even if you're uh, in Bordeaux. But um, I have to ask you, um, uh, you've tasted some amazing stuff uh, down the years. Um, the most remarkable or the finest wine you've ever tasted? I think the one that sticks to my memory the most was when I was quite new to the whole game. I tasted the 99 Jamais Cote Roti from... Um, was a bibendum on primeur um, tasting, I think um, somewhere in somewhere in London, I can't remember where. Um, but anyway, I remember going to this tasting, tasting this wine and buying a case of it. And it was just such a beautiful wine. Um, tasted young, you know, so it was a primeur sample. And it did turn out to be a fantastic wine that I've, I think I'm through all my bottles now as of last year, that, that just gave a lot of pleasure. Um, it was just that one moment tasting this wine and, uh, you know, I was much less experienced then, but I sort of recognised something in that wine that I'd never seen before in a, in a wine. And I do love Northern Rhone. I mean, really good Cote or Hermitage from Northern Rhone, I think, is a very special wine. Um, um, it's not that common um, to find it, but when you do, it's, it's remarkable. It sounds delicious. Um, sorry to miss out on that. Um, you have an extraordinary output rate, as I kind of referenced in the introduction. Um, what is your next project now that you've got uh, the third edition of Wine Science sort of through the gate? What are you working on now? I'm about two thirds of the way through a new book on viticulture, sort of the new viticulture, you know, all the new things that have been going on in terms of um, how to grow grapevines. Um, and it's it's bringing quite a lot of new science. So I'm really quite thrilled about this and I hope it's going to be out. I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to make a big push to finish it in the next um, couple of months. Um, and that will be something hopefully that, that will be useful to a lot of people. Right. Well, good luck with that. And uh, it's always great to, to chat to you. I haven't done it for a while because of uh, the circumstances of the last uh, 18 months, but it's uh, always great to chat to you. So thank you very much for finding the time to talk to us on The Drinking Hour, Jamie. It's a real pleasure. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
it's time for the first of our latest crop of IWSC medal winners from the 2021 Hall of Fame. And let's start with the top of the podium, a Greek gold medal winner, Cuve Monsignori, 2018, from Estate Argyros, from the stunning island of Santorini, land of a thousand Instagram shots. Most of the wines used here are uh, from vines that are more than 70 years old and they're trained in kuluri, that's a bracelet shape if you want to know. Uh, the land is farmed organically and ploughing is still done by mules. The wines are, oh, I'm going to do that again because I keep saying wines instead of vines. Right, here we go. <clears throat> it's time for the first of our latest crop of IWSC medal winners from the 2021 Hall of Fame and let's start with the top of the podium, a Greek gold medal winner, Cuve Monsignori, 2018, from Estate Argyros, from the stunning island of Santorini, land of a thousand Instagram shots. Most of the vines used here are more than 70 years old. They're trained in kuluri, that's a bracelet shape. The land is farmed organically and ploughing is still done by mules. The vines are not irrigated and oak ageing is done in huge oak French barrels. The judges said, Focused and intense, this wine oozes class. Lemongrass on the nose, good use of oak, and Lee's work gives the wine great body and structure. Freshly cut grapefruit and lemon on the palate, an astounding wine that is expressive and delicious. I uh, love those Santorini wines. Sounds delicious. To northern Italy next, and silver medal winning Lugana. Limne 2020 from Tinuta Rovelia owned by the Azzoni family for four generations and started by their Swiss great-grandfather who fell in love with Lake Garda and the surrounding countryside. The wine is made south of the lake in the commune of Lugana and the judges said bright and intricate with fruity layers of nectarine, lemon and yuzu beside fragrant sage and briny green olive notes. A harmonious and lengthy wine with a delicious almond finish. And our third medal winner, Cuvée Vellevin 2019, Domaine de la Motte, Chablis won a silver medal, a 25 hectare estate handed down from father to son since the 1950s. Now under the stewardship of Bernard Michaud, an ex-chef who works with his son Adrienne and nephew Guillaume. They are fastidious about producing wines that reflect the very particular terroir of Chablis with vines on both Portlandian and Kimmeridgian soil. 10% of the wine is aged in oak and blended back into the wine, giving a richer style. Uh, the judges said an enticing nose offering complex layers of confit lemon, fresh thyme, orange peel, Williams pear and roasted hazelnut. A classic yet stylish example, rich and beautifully focused. Sounds very much like our next guest. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Feeling festive? Well, uh, no, probably not. But it's time to catch up with Freddie Bulmer, the buyer for Australia, New Zealand, Austria and Eastern Europe at the Wine Society, a monthly regular here on The Drinking Hour. And uh, he has, uh, well, something that might inspire some humbug, frankly. Uh, Freddie is feeling festive 
Um, not just because he has a beard to rival Father Christmas. Um, <laughs> Freddie, he joins us from his grosso in Stevenage. Um, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, seriously, um, why are you feeling festive? <laughs> I'm feeling festive year round, David. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's nice to chat to you again, by the way. Even Thank if it you. Is, uh, talking nice about Christmas when the sun is shining. And actually, it's one of the few nice summer days we've had this year, so this is particularly weird. But, um, but yeah, so no, Christmas is very much what's been keeping me occupied for, for the last couple of months now, actually. Um, it's something that we have to think about so far in advance. Obviously, if you're shipping wines from New Zealand and Australia, you've got to be thinking about it quite a way ahead of time. So it's been a busy old festive, festive couple of months for me. So for a bit of context, how important then is Christmas for uh, the wine society. Yeah, it's important, definitely. I mean, we do a big chunk of uh, of our business at Christmas. Uh, it's not perhaps um, as significant for us as it might be for some other wine companies. Uh, you know, there's some people who report that Christmas is sort of fifty percent of their uh, annual sales, annual turnover. For us, we're kind wow. of you know about twenty five percent or so. Uh, but and, and you know that's over the months of November and December. So you know two months accounting for twenty five ish percent of of annual regular sales is is still pretty hefty. I mean it's it's absolutely not to be sniffed at, and it really is still action stations at that time of year. So as you say, the sun is shining outside. It's still August, just about. Uh, there isn't even that lovely sort of whiff of autumn in the air quite yet. Although that normally comes at the beginning of September, and I love it. But. Uh, it would seem so absurd to so many people to be talking about Christmas right now. Uh, yeah. But actually, you will be very well advanced by now with your Christmas planning, won't you? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much done, actually, from my point of view. So, you know, from the buying side of things, uh, I was choosing wines for, you know, from Australia and New Zealand and um, in particular, but also Austria, Eastern Europe. Too, there's obviously less time pressure with those because they don't have to come from quite as far uh, away. But I was working on those selections in June, really. Um, June Gosh. certainly by by kind of end of July. That was that was wrapping up and finishing touches in in August. So it's kind of now over to the guys in marketing to actually um, finish getting the offers put together, getting the Christmas list done and dusted, and you know across the whole business, it's obviously uh, a very significant time of year so it's a time of year that everyone's working towards very early on so um yeah i was obviously requesting samples and things from suppliers from from wineries uh quite a while ago and saying to them look we're really sorry i know it's the middle of uh middle of summer but um we need to start chatting about christmas so it's always it's always mm. a weird one start, starting an email saying you're not going to like this but uh, start <laughs> thinking about uh, christmas wines while it's you know a warm hopefully summer's day in june or july so it's always a bit bizarre yeah i know that in i think it's september or maybe it's early october they open the the christmas shops in the likes of yeah. selfridges and yeah. harrods and, and everyone always goes no go away i can't be thinking <laughs> about that yet but uh, but of course uh, you do need to be prepared so what what are you thinking about when you put your sort of uh, santa hat on and you're thinking about uh making selections for the festive period what do you what do you have in your mind 
That's a good question. I think we're, we're focusing a lot on, uh, you know, potentially food and wine uh, pairing. You know, obviously Christmas is a time of year where even people who might not think too much about it in the rest of the year suddenly start to think about, oh, you know, what are we going to eat and what goes well with what we're going to eat? People make that extra little bit of effort. So certainly from my point of view, I'm thinking, OK, what type of stuff? Uh, will people be eating at that time of year and then what wines have I got or can I find that will go perfectly with those things uh, one thing that we do a lot of at the wine society is these sort of um, mixed cases hampers all those sorts of things so we have things like the Christmas survival case which is good fun and, and has a whole range of different wines in there from the kind of uh, you know aperitifi type of thing that you might just have a glass on the go of while you're cooking right through to the stuff that you might want to drink on Christmas day and so obviously there's a little bit of a shopping list that comes you know my way for, for wines to go in there um, but really also it's about finding wines that are a, a bit of a treat you know are a bit special because at this time of year people are really looking to maybe treat themselves spend a little bit more than they might normally so, um, so yeah, I can actually go, oh, yeah, that, that wine that I've been wanting to buy for a while but I uh, haven't really had a, had a space for in the range because it might be a little bit premium uh, or might be a little bit harder to sell, you know, when, when the sun is shining in the middle of summer, take, uh, you know, a top-end Australian, you know, Barossa Shiraz or something like that. It's probably slightly less appealing for people in the, in the heat of summer, but when it comes to Christmas and people want these nice, fuller-bodied, generous red wines and... That's uh, just the right time of year to, to, to mm. work with those sorts of things. And you do see people trade up as well, do you? Because I know they do in the supermarkets, yeah. but you are you have this sort of loyal base of, of regular customers at the Wine Society and you know they buy good stuff. So do you yeah. see them buying even better stuff as well? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think people generally um, buy more and often buy better as well which is great. I mean, we also, what's, uh, I mean, what I find quite interesting is um, at Christmas, there's lots of members who maybe don't, or haven't bought from us for a, for a little while throughout the year, but then because at Christmas, they want to really treat themselves to some excellent wines and, a, a, you know, a, maybe a, perhaps a bigger variety or more choice than they might normally have throughout the year. They'll then come and place what might be, you know, one of uh, only a handful of wine society orders that they might place throughout the year. But then that's the time when they think, oh, yeah, I really want to treat myself and let's go to the wine society. But obviously there are people who buy regularly every few weeks or whatever throughout the year. Um, and Christmas is the time when they go, oh, you know, I'm going to spend a little bit more on, uh, on a bottle of something nice. Um, normally, of course, people would be catering for, for a group of family, friends or whatever in the lead up to Christmas. And obviously there was a bit less of that last year. Mm. But uh, that does mean that there's a nice mixture of firm favourites, you know, the kind of the, the classic stuff that we'd sell loads of throughout the year anyway. But then also mixed in with that, a few special bottles for celebrations and, and parties and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, people definitely do spend a little bit more at Christmas time. It's a logistical feat as well, isn't it? Because I, I'm, I'm, I love uh, the... Um, the special festive uh, episode of um, of the Good Life, where Margot <laughs> uh, declares. I mean, it's so old, but it's actually it's been repeated so many times, and it's just a joy. It's probably repeated every Christmas. And Margot famously declares that Christmas is cancelled, 
uh, because Fortnum and Mason have failed to deliver it. And uh, of course, uh, then uh, Margot and Jerry end up next door with Tom and Barbara having a good life Christmas instead. It's all great <laughs> fun. But um, it, it is, you know, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there? You can't cock it up, can you? No, absolutely not. No, you've got to get it right. You know, Christmas comes but once a year. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's the time to really focus on your on your wines, get that right, focus on the food, get that right. And uh, you know, it all helps to, to make the occasion extra special as well. I think when you do treat yourself to a really nice bottle of wine at that time of year, uh, it, it, yeah, it feels especially nice. It's a special occasion, special bottle of wine, hopefully special company. And it's all it's worth um, going the extra mile for, for sure. Well, talking of special bottles of wine, uh, you have, uh, I think you do this, if not every year, then I've certainly seen it before. But you do a Christmas claret that is a, a special secret wine and i think it's the kind of thing that you know if you told me where it came from you'd have to kill me yes yes i would have to kill you yeah um and uh, this this podcast would have to sort of self-destruct shortly right. after as well um no we do uh, <laughs> we do our ulysse um, uh, poyak uh in the lead up to christmas which um, is extremely popular it ends up being one of our best-selling wines uh in in the run up to christmas but it is of course a secret where it comes from because it's um i, I mean i can say that it's it's one of the most outstanding wineries in uh in in bordeaux um mm. but uh, in order for us to be able to get wine from them which we can sell at such a reasonable price they ask that we don't mention their name so it's all very okay. mysterious it's all very yes. mysterious but it's very 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 good wine at a, a very keen price and i think that's one of the things that also makes the wine society so special you know we've got these really old relationships which help us get access to these old parcels of pretty serious stuff and um provided mm everybody's happy we can um get them out to members at a very keen price so that's definitely one of our best sellers we also do huge amounts of sauterne um at christmas oh, too dumb. yes yeah delicious. i love sauterne i love it yes, it's one, so of those, do I. one of those things every time i drink it i think oh, i really need to buy more of this and i and i just yeah. always always sort of forget and then it gets to christmas and I go oh better treat myself um and uh i, I think we sell we must sell um, more so turn than pretty much anyone else in the country anyway. But at Christmas, that really ramps up, which is nice. And again, I guess it's a sign of people kind of treating themselves and going that extra mile to really think about pairing wine with what they're eating and, and so on. So um, it's yeah, so good it's, for the cheese board as well, isn't oh, it? I mean, it is. People tend to think about pudding, but I love it with a roquefort. Oh, it's delicious. Do you know, actually, with that sort of thing, with a kind of a salty blue cheese, Sauterne is the best thing to pair it with. And yeah. obviously, people often go with port, uh, you know, with Stilton or something like that as well. The classic that, that people go with, as you know, is, is port. But actually, Sauterne, I think, is even better. Yeah, so do I. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> before you go, just before we started speaking, uh, into my inbox uh, popped up uh, an email from uh, uh, the lovely Victoria, who works uh, with your uh, PR uh, team at saying uh, Freddie's fresh look at Australia <laughs> and um, I'm just flicking through this this is a promotion that you're doing uh, imminently for uh, some quite unusual varieties in the context of Australia so we've got Negra Amaro uh, we've got Alianico which both of those more synonymous with Puglia or or Basilicata yeah, yeah. probably actually yeah. uh, than, than Australia uh, you've got a Pinot Grigio in there as well uh, and, a, and, a, and a blend from the McLaren Vale so what's all this about well 
I'm, I mean, I'm really excited about Australia, to be honest. And I think um, it's suffered in recent years in the UK because obviously uh, for a long, long time, Australia was just sort of thought of as being a home of cheap and cheerful wine. And then once people got bored of that, then they sort of switched off to it and went to places like Chile uh, and, and, you know, other places that were great sources of cheap Chardonnay and cheap Shiraz, basically. Mm. But what people, I think, in the UK, uh, through no fault of their own, aren't necessarily aware of is actually the huge amount of variety that is available in Australia. And so I really wanted to, over the next kind of year or so, kicking off in the next couple of weeks, um, I really want to shine a spotlight on the on the variety that Australia has to offer. And, and I think these... Um, you know, Mediterranean grapes are really interesting. I think they are just a, a small example of uh, the, the sort of diversity of different grape varieties and wine styles and things that Australia has to offer. So we've got um, our 1874 magazine. So it's we, we do a handful of these magazines a year now at the Wine Society and the, the autumn edition, which is coming up in the next couple of weeks, We'll have a big old Australia section in it. So I'm, I'm really excited about it, actually, because I really I think that the challenge with Australia has been also the fact that it is so sort of diverse when it comes to wine styles. And there's so much to explore that it can actually be quite overwhelming. So I really yes. want to try and yeah. try and focus down a little bit uh, and break things up into a handful of little categories. And, and this sort of alternative grape varieties category is is one of those so we'll hope to be exploring those going forwards yeah okay well i'm very much looking forward to trying these and uh you've uh, you, you did a limited blind spot was it range of some quite unusual varieties from yeah. australia yeah uh, about a year ago and they were absolutely great uh, oh good so now that's good really news actually i'm pleased that you good. like those i was just going to say because that's that's a range that we've actually done for many like 10 years uh, but it hasn't quite received the uh, recognition, I think, perhaps, that, that those wines deserve. And so we're actually relaunching that blind spot range early next year. Um, and so it's very exciting. So, so keep your Good. eyes peeled early next year for more of those. Well, I will. And it does exactly what you've said. It just shines a light on yeah. uh, just how diverse Australia is. So it's a really good idea. So I look forward to those as well. And good Brilliant. luck with uh, uh, with this uh, autumn uh, campaign and have a very happy Christmas. Friend. Yes. Merry Christmas, David. And uh, yes, I hope you get all the presents that you hope for. Thank you. See you next time. <laughs> Cheers. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And just before we go, there's time for our final batch of medal winners from the IWSC. And in Freddie's honour, we thought we'd choose three medal-winning spirits you can find at the Wine Society, perhaps in time for Christmas. First, Ledeig 10-year-old single malt whisky from Tobermory, the only whisky distillery on the Isle of Mull. Founded in 1798, making it one of the oldest working Scottish distilleries, Mull has a harbour famous for its colourful painted houses. The judges said an exceptionally well-crafted single malt whisky with a smoky, sweet flavour. A touch of nut, soft fruit and vanilla on the palate, leading to a sweet, smoky, accomplished finish. A spirit that delivers on all levels. And next, another Wine Society pick... Angostura seven-year-old rum from Trinidad and Tobago won a silver medal with 94 points. That's just one shy of a 
Gold. The name sounds familiar. It's the same company that produces the famous Angostura bitters. This rum is aged in old bourbon casks for a minimum of seven years. The judges said, finely balanced, sweet beauty laced with balsamic, mint, nutmeg, tropical fruit, chocolate and cigars. Sounds like Christmas in a bottle. The wood is well integrated with an excellent length, they said. And here's a treat to round off, Frappin VSOP Cognac. It won a silver medal. If you're not familiar with Frappin, it's a family-owned distillery which can trace its history back to 1270. All of the vineyards are based in the Grand Champagne region, or I should say Grand Champagne region, really, of Cognac. Um, it's so called for its high chalk content in the soil. So the soils there are similar to the Champagne region, hence the name. It's actually nothing to do with the, the traditional method sparkling wine. They also grow the grapes and they control every aspect of production at Frappin. Uh, the judges said, wonderfully lush mouthfeel, savoury forest floor, burnt acacia, honey and cassia bark come through first, followed by bitter orange, raisin and sweet apricot. A slight sour apple note lingers. Frappin cognac is just delicious. And all three of those uh, spirits are available at the Wine Society. And that is it for another episode of the Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Thank you for tuning in. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. You can follow me too, if you like. Um, I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And if you liked what you heard uh, and you're listening on iTunes, do please give us a nice review. Uh, five stars would be lovely. Thank you very much. And thank you, more importantly, for tuning in. See you next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. <laughs>